0: Is silence scary. It's like it's scary because we have to face ourselves. We have to face truth. There's no more diversion. There's no Netflix. There's no HBO Max. You know, it's just there in the moment with yourself, finding out what's really real. Welcome to Politicology.
1: I'm Ron Steslow. We live in a loud world that's getting louder. We encounter noise all around us. From the chatter of polite conversations to street noise in a big city there's actually construction going on on the street behind me to the constant intrusion of the dings of notifications I don't need to tell you this, you're on a device listening to a podcast but what is all of this noise doing to us and what does it mean to find quiet in the midst of it in fact what is silence anyway how can it affect our minds our bodies, and our relationships. I'm going to discuss that today with the authors of a terrific new book called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Justin Talbot Zorn has been a policymaker and a meditation teacher in the United States Congress. He's a Harvard and Oxford-trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being. He's written for publications including The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Time, and CNN. He's also a co founder of Astrea Strategies, a consultancy that bridges deep vision with impactful communications and action. Justin, it's great to meet you. Welcome to Politicology.
0: So good to be here, Ron. Thank you.
1: And we're also joined by Lee Mars. Lee is a collaboration consultant and a leadership coach for major universities, corporations, and federal agencies. She's a longtime student of researchers and practitioners of ritualized use of psychedelic medicines in the West. Lee has led a training program to promote an experimental mindset among teams at NASA and a decade-long cross-sector collaboration to reduce toxic chemicals in products in partnership with Green Science Policy Institute, Harvard University, IKEA, Google, and Kaiser Permanente. She is also a co-founder of Astrea Strategies. Lee, thank you for making the time. Welcome to Politicology.
2: Thank you so much, Ron.
1: So... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, before we started recording, uh, there rarely comes along the opportunity for a conversation that I've looked forward to as much as this one, um, for for lots of reasons, both political uh, and personal. Um, before we dig in, though, why don't you share a little bit more about your personal backgrounds, um, and uh, and then we'll talk about what brought you to this work. Lee, do you want to lead off?
2: Yeah, we came to this work from a place of despondency. Actually, our work in the world was pretty noise-soaked, um, active, important in our minds. You know, We're working on issues that we care so much about, climate change, removing toxic chemicals, all kinds of things. But we were both getting this sense that more thinking and more talking, more PowerPoints, more data, more meetings, all these things were not going to be the way to find the answers through these intractable problems. And at that time, we had just met, we'd just been introduced, and we had an intuition that the place to look was silence, that the answers may come in those open spaces beyond all the mental stuff. Hmm. So we followed that hunch by writing an article for Harvard Business Review, very brief, starting looking at the auditory noise. Um, We'll go into the taxonomy of noise we cover in a bit. But to our surprise, that article went viral, was widely shared, and it really gave us pause, like there was something here to investigate. And so that set us out on a journey.
0: Justin, how about you? And for us, when I think about this, Ron, where this started, I think about that that Harvard Business Review came out really right after the 2016 election. That feeling of despondence that Lee was talking about, just this feeling like, what are we going to do about this crazy world? How can we possibly be effective In bringing more sanity right now. And as Lee mentioned, it was this sense that maybe the problems run deeper than the usual diagnoses of polarization and other problems we're facing in our society. Maybe the problem is much more fundamental. The fact that we're bombarded with noise right now. So we think that that's why this Harvard Business Review article resonated with people. It's the idea that, as Lee mentioned, maybe the answers come from the space beyond Thinking and talking come from the open space in between. And in the article, we invited people to take a break from one of life's most pervasive responsibilities, which is having to think of what to say. So this this article led us to investigate what what more we could do in terms of bringing deeper inspiration and creativity and, and enabling people to have deeper conversations about issues that matter. So we started interviewing different sorts of people, neuroscientists and poets and business leaders, artists, filmmakers, musicians, someone incarcerated for 30 years on death row for a crime that the evidence showed he didn't commit. We started interviewing all these people and exploring this, this question of how we could bring more Equilibration, more calmness, more clarity to our world, our society, we started exploring it through by asking all these people a question. And the question was, what was the deepest silence? What's the deepest silence you've ever known? And the answers to us were so surprising because they were describing states that weren't always auditorily quiet. You know, births and deaths and moments of awe, moments of just blinding clarity in their lives that appeared often unexpectedly. You know, sometimes it was running the perfect line down Roaring Rapids, or even the 4 a.m. mark at an all-night dance party. But what these people were describing when we asked this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? They were describing moments of pristine attention. And they were all talking about how these moments of pristine attention are essential to what we were trying to get at, which is how do we find more inspiration and energy and clarity in this crazy world. How do we help heal our society? You
1: mentioned this question that you asked all of your interviewees, and um, you actually opened the book with uh, that question in a beautiful uh, inquiry that you offer the reader before they even dive in. And I feel like that'd be a really great place for us to start. Lee, would you... um, willing to read that for us
2: absolutely chapter one an invitation what's the deepest silence you've ever known you can trust the first memory that comes to you no need to overthink it as you remember the experience see if you can settle into it recall where you are what's happening around you and who if anyone Is present. See if you can summon the atmosphere, the quality of light, the mood in the air, the feeling in your body. Is it quiet to the ears? Or is it the kind of silence that comes when no person or thing is laying claim on your attention? Is it quiet to your nerves? Or is it the kind of silence that lives deeper still, like when the turbulent waters of internal chatter suddenly part, revealing a clear path forward? Take a moment to consider what might sound like a strange question. Is the silence simply the absence of noise? Or is it also a presence unto itself?
1: Thank you for that. Well, later on, uh, I want to talk about the answer to that question being a presence unto itself. But before we do, um, why don't you share a little bit about what brought you both to practicing silence in your own lives? Justin?
0: Absolutely. You know, for me, it started with an interest in meditation. When I was a teenager, you know, facing some feelings of depression at times when I was a a kid around college and and learning about meditation actually from the Beatles of all things, finding my interest in, in meditating. And over time, I became something of what you'd call a lapsed meditator, I think you could say. And that's the place from which I entered writing this book. I was working in Congress, as you mentioned. I served as legislative director for three members of Congress. And I was in a moment of life when... As probably familiar to a lot of people, I was, I was often beating myself up for not finding the time to meditate enough. And I started realizing that, you know, beyond all the tools and rules of mindfulness, the bells and cushions and retreats we're supposed to have, we can simply tune into silence. We can take just a couple of moments, even if all we have is a few seconds we can see how deeply we can go into that silence. So for me, that was that was a realization that grew over time, grew with this book. I have two-year-old twins and a six-year-old at home now, and like many people, working from a home office. So those moments of silence, of quiet, are sometimes brief. So the work for me is often not the quantity of silence, but the quality. How about you, Lee?
2: Justin and I share the lapsed meditator story. I will say that when I found meditation in my early 20s, it was really a lifeline for me. Um, and so I did a lot of vipassana, in particular meditation retreats, deep, long, silent meditation retreats. I feel such gratitude for that time. But as I transitioned to more of a family life and bigger professional demands and uh, mothering and all these things... Uh, I found that my quiet, well, the other thing is actually being still physically, you know, maybe there's walking meditation, but that sitting meditation was actually quite difficult for me physically, um, that I just couldn't sit comfortably without injury. And I once did a meditation retreat entirely standing for six days because I couldn't sit. Hmm. which i don't recommend. Wow. So, <laughs> just put that out there. so what i found is after the sort of that same kind of guilty struggle even thinking as we took on this book that we weren't going to need to return to a meditation study, what i found is actually the way i find quiet is through movement and through dance. So, mm-hmm. i'm a dance teacher and a choreographer. And so it's a very loud external, you know, thump and beat that but an internal uh, state of deep quiet, focused attention on connecting to the movement and conveying that instantly to a classroom of students that brings me deep quiet. And you mentioned that my past in uh, studies with psychedelic leaders and pioneering researchers and things, and that's another place of deep quiet. So we're interested in those places, really broadening the dialogue, broadening the, um, the offerings that silence can come through any of these doorways, really. Quiet is what we think and experience quiet to be. And so the journey has been really rich and beautiful and deep gratitude for all the meditation. And that is one way, but one way, one way. And we're interested in all the ways. You
1: know, I started my journey with, we'll call it a silence practice, right? Because it has taken many different forms over the years, but it was in, in and around 2016. And this was a you know, tumultuous period for the country, uh, for our politics, but also for me personally, also professionally. Um, and what I found uh, in the years since um, is a deep and abiding power of that kind of practice, the tuning into the present moment. Um, sometimes that's an actual auditory silence. Sometimes silence takes a different form, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but when I've shared this experience with uh, friends in the political world, um, uh, friends in the rat race, uh, when, we, when we get caught up in the chaos and urgency of daily life, I have found Um, A lot of resistance to the idea of being still, of quieting your mind. Um, And, you know, often when we talk about embracing quiet and limiting noise, uh, it sounds like it's revolutionary in the 21st century world, right? Um, But there seems to be something inherently scary about silence. Um, And uh, before we go further, I want to talk a little bit about why. Why? you uh note in the book um what i was something i was familiar with uh in the mystic christian tradition we have a thing called the dark night of the soul which is this wrestling um wrestling with the you know with the the longing for distraction uh essentially um and then you also mentioned this experiment uh which i hadn't heard of before it was actually stunning uh in which i think 65 or so percent of men and 25% of women um in, in this experiment would rather receive electrical shocks than it administered themselves uh, than endure 15 minutes in a room without devices or distractions in silence. Um, and the gender disparity there is very interesting to me. Um, but there's this beautiful quote uh, from the book uh, in that section, and it says, "The fear of silence is the fear of the unknown, but it's also the fear of what might become known." So I wonder if you could spend a little time talking to us about how you have found that resistance and what's behind the fear of what might become known.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Ron. When we look at this question, we have a chapter of the book called Why Silence is Scary. We've come to realize that at the first level, silence is scary because of what we today call FOMO. You know, just the fear of missing out on what's happening the fear also of attending to what needs to be attended to in our lives. You know, because in our world, we need to earn a living. We need to keep track of the weather, keep track of situations for our family. So it's something that runs deep in the fabric of a human being to seek information for survival and also for the realization of our dreams for thriving. It's natural. We talk with neuroscientists and a variety of academic psychologists about this. The drive for the human being to seek information is natural. It's just that now we're at the unprecedented all-you-can-eat buffet of information all the time. And the flip side of that drive for information is that, yes, it's, it's necessary for survival and the realization of what we want to realize. But it can also be a diversion from needing to really look at what's going on in our lives and what's going on in ourselves. And, you know, back to this you know, being primarily a political podcast, around, you know, we could see this manifest in politics. We live in a culture where we often mistake stress for aliveness. We talked with a neuroscientist, and MD, PhD researcher named Judson Brewer, who's one of the leading researchers in the science of the minds of meditators. And one thing he explained to us is that in his many years of studies of the brains of meditators, and also doing studies with addiction research, he found that there's one common denominator to how people in these studies describe a state of noisiness in their being. And he said that that's a state of contraction. And there's one common denominator to what, what people describe as a state of pristine attention or silence. And that's a state of expansion. But what Dr. Brewer explained to us is that as a society, we tend to prize and prioritize the dopamine rush, which is all about that state of contraction. We tend to associate progress with that state of rush and stress and contraction. Aristotle had an idea of well-being that was a lot different. He called it eudaimonia. And that was well being, happiness grounded in virtue. And that was the way Aristotle talked about this, and other, other teachers, Gandhi had ways of talking about this as well, was a state of well being that's grounded in expansiveness. And that's, the, that's where we can arrive to through these practices of letting go of all the mental stimuli from time to time. Let's talk a little bit more about noise
1: now. Um, one of the things I love about, Your approach to this book is the rigor you brought to it. Can you talk about how you use noise in the book, Lee?
2: Well, in two words, noise is unwanted distractions. And we're interested in how that happens in our ears and that decibel level that I mentioned the article first took on. And that's certainly where we started with the approach. But in today's world, it's also quite interesting to and important to incorporate the noise that comes at us usually through our screens, but there's the mass proliferation of information available to us, as well as then what that looks and feels like on the inside, how <laughs> how congested it gets internally, you know, our internal soundscapes. So to break those out, most of us are familiar about with auditory noise measured in decibels, and we look at how siren sounds over the last hundred years have increased six-fold. Um, Emergency vehicles are a great proxy because they need to sur- you know they need to cut through the surrounding din in order to get our attention. So those sounds have gone up from 96 decibels to 123 deci- decibels that may not sound like a lot, but on a logarithmic sa- um, scale, that is six times louder to the ear. Um, across Europe, an estimated 450 million people, roughly 65% of the population, live with noise levels that the World Health Organization considers hazardous to our health. So, and Europe is just doing a much better job measuring all of our, you know, the auditory soundscape. So, that's where that statistic comes from. Informationally, um, as your listeners will no doubt recognize, there is just so much more information to have at hand, you know, at any given moment. In 2010, Eric Schmidt, the then CEO of Google, estimated that every two days we now create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization to 2003. And then other researchers are looking at how we switch between online content every 19 seconds or so, which is mm-hmm. astonishing, and and eating up about an hour of time a day to just get back on track. For me, it feels like sometimes far more, far yeah. longer. Yeah. So we're really being inundated by information, taking in something like five times the amount we did just a generation ago. And our capacity, so we measure... Um, We measure that attention, or cognitive scientists measure that through bits of information. Our ability to process bits of information has not increased, but the demand on our attention has increased exponentially. So that's part of that problem. And then we make a link here to what what does that do to our internal soundscape. Um, Ethan Cross, the uh, professor at University of Michigan, who wrote a book about chatter, estimates that we listen something to or to something like three hundred and twenty, State of the Union addresses a day of compressed speech internally. Compressed speech is like four thousand words per minute, he estimates. So that chatter is not helpful, chatter. It's not it's it's rumination, it's fear, it's anxiety. we're And we're seeing all these, you know, all of these conditions on the rise. So we make those links between those feedback loops. Noise begets noise. And uh, we wanted to take all those on because we feel like that is at least a good uh, sampling of what most of us are dealing with right now.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to reiterate this doesn't have to be auditory uh, sound waves, right? When we talk about noise. Um, And if you want to try a little experiment, uh, you know, pause this podcast, turn your phone all the way off. Just all the way off. Go put it in a drawer in another room. Come back to where you're sitting, or just sit anywhere. And notice what that does to your body. Because I've I've done this and it I I feel like a a, a like a very noticeable sort of tingle in my limbs at the sensation, the sensation of of being. Without all of the distractions that come with the device that you're, you know, tethered to twenty four seven, and that's an absence of information that's flowing into your consciousness every single second of the day. Sometimes you don't notice it until it's gone. Um, I uh, I want to talk a little bit more about how silence impacts our minds and our bodies. Um, we, some of the you walk through some of the telltale signs. Uh, in the book of um, too much external stimulus and internal chatter um, do you want to give give folks a sense of what that what that feels like in their body because when i read that i thought oh man i i know all of these I've, I, I identify with all of these things i can think back to moments when i felt them um but i didn't know that they were signs of too much external stimulus and now i use them as sort of prompts to tune into myself right to to oh i recognize this now i can tune into what's happening in my in my body can you talk a little bit more about that
2: yeah so i'll start by saying that we spoke with a professor of biobehavioral health and medicine joshua smythe who when we asked him for a, a definition for internal silence out of some exasperation perhaps with us he said you know quiet is what people think quiet is quiet is what we experience quiet as being in our bodies and our minds and our relationships and our tasks. And this was a really big turning moment for us, helping us realize like, yeah, this is a subjective experience, as is noise, by the way. And if we can actually tune into the signals for each of us that we are inundated with noise, what are the signs of that? For me, I get irritated. I get short with the people I love most in my household. I'm not you know, that's not something that's, that's not my normal. That's not my go to. So if irritation shows up, then I know, uh oh, it's time. It's time to mitigate some of that noise. I notice physical cues. I notice like a clenching in the jaw. I notice a tightness in my abdomen, my diaphragm in particular. So those are signals that, you know, there's just too much going on. I'm overwhelmed. My nervous system is overwhelmed. It's time to turn down the volume. You know, metaphorically, we also look at, well, okay, so what are the signals that we are achieving, you know, quiet, that we're experiencing the quiet that is our quiet. So for me, that is um different experience. All those things are relaxed. Say the diaphragms relax, the jaws, you know, I'm not even thinking about those things. But I'm also feeling connected to more people, more life, more sense of self, my sense of a, a bigger connection with the universe. You know, that's me. Right, That's my my form. There's just a sense of ease and flow. And um, so we turn the reader towards looking at what are those signals that you are finding more that quiet and keep doing that, even if it's weird, even if it's wacky. That professor told us about a guy in his studies who was a chainsaw carver. So he found his quiet. Through flow states of needing every ounce, every bit of attention, right? (laughs) So for that flow state, his ability to have that self-referential thought that Csikszentmihalyi talks about in intentional studies was not there. He had to focus it all on carving the attention. He's in a flow state. So, yeah, quiet is what you think quiet is. And it might be surprising.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Justin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah go ahead. What Lee's describing brings us back to what you asked about earlier, how this book emerged. Because for us, it was this sense that the whole nation was in that clenched jaw state of overstimulation. Yeah, totally. So when yeah. we ask questions like, why is our politics so crazy? Or why can't we mobilize to do the things that we absolutely need to do as societies? It's like when we're in that state of overstimulation with that physical state of bracing that comes with it. There is a kind of paralysis that keeps us from coming together, from going deep in conversation, from finding the creativity and inspiration to be able to really find our way to overcome challenges so, we explored this idea with scientists, you know, these kinds of intuitions that we felt, these kinds of experiences we felt in our own lives around the effects of noise. We explored this with, with physicians and, and uh, psych, uh, physicians across a variety of medical disciplines, psychologists, neuroscientists, and we learned about the ways that there's all of these impacts of noise on cardiovascular health, on risk of stroke, on risk of depression, and other mental health conditions. But we started studying the story of how in the 1850s, when Florence Nightingale was serving as the lead official in a British medical hospital, British Army medical hospital during the Crimean War, she had to deal with improving conditions where gangrene was going unattended and the conditions of sanitation, the filth was just unbelievable. And yet amidst all of that, she rated the noise as a top tier concern, which at the time seemed Mm -hmm. crazy. She said that unnecessary noise is the most cruel absence of care that can be inflicted either on sick or well. And what she meant by this was a recognition all the way back then, before science even knew about this phenomenon, she was pointing out That noise drives the fight-or-flight response, which inhibits the body's ability to heal. And we've learned in recent decades that it also inhibits the mind's ability to learn, to hear what other people are saying, and to think clearly, ultimately. So there's all these different levels to it. And Florence Nightingale identified different kinds of noise— she said that it's really the kinds of noise that make claims on our consciousness that are the most pernicious chatter just outside of intelligibility in a hallway is what she pointed to, you know, and this is the kind of thing that in the age of social media in the age of, you know, leaving people waiting on a text thread, what did that person mean by that? The kinds of, the kinds of noise that, that reverberate in our consciousness This is what we started to discover about the feedback loops between the different kinds of noise that Lee was describing. There's more auditory noise in the world. It's an empirical fact. Even after the COVID lockdowns, there's way more. And then there's more informational noise, clearly, arguably exponentially more. But we've found that that also results in more internal noise, which is a big reason, we think, why the world is in the state it's in and we feel like silence as this presence is a, is a way to be able to find the energy and inspiration to again, you know, muster what we need to do, to muster the energy and courage that we need to overcome the challenges.
1: This is exactly um, what I wanted to talk to you about, um, because one of those telltale signs that you mentioned in the book is rigidity in our thinking and behaviors that's the way you put it and um, immediately that just made me think of the um the dialogue in our politics now um both our thinking and our behaviors and i um i wanted to explore that a little bit as as a consequence or a symptom of too much external stimulus and internal chatter and you know what um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about equanimity uh, as a as a meditation teacher I think that applies here um, but this rigidity in our thinking and behaviors that is caused by the overload of internal chatter um, what could easing that do to the way we figure out how to solve problems with one another i.e politics um, how could that transform the way the way we're currently doing it which i think everyone would agree isn't really working
2: maybe i'll start us off and what um the work i'm doing with chemists and people who care very much about the toxic chemicals uh, that are in our products that are largely unregulated that problem has been a pretty intractable intractable problem i'd say and when we're coming together, we're coming together with scientists who've been studying that, but also advocacy groups who are deeply concerned about, you know, how to really mobilize things and then the government regulators and also the businesses who want to do the right thing. But they're also not necessarily accustomed to being in the same room. In fact, sometimes they might make the other wrong and not have a lot of space for, for, um, you know, openness <laughs> for figuring out how they're going to collaborate moving forward. So there's a place where we can get rigid. And when we do that work, there's a couple of things we're trying to do. We're trying to bring in novel thinking. We're trying to bring in real breakthrough thinking because this problem is not going to be solved, you know, thinking about it the same way we have. And it's not going to be, arguably, it's not going to be solved in four walls and fluorescent lighting and when we're disconnected from the actual harm being done in the world and to our planet. So we go out into the redwoods and do this work and create an environment where we're connecting as humans, right? And we're getting away from informational inputs, and our Wi-Fi doesn't work there. It's wonderful. Um, You know, we're limiting the amount of information that comes into these, what we call lightning talks, just brief 12-minute PowerPoint presentations, and then a lot of space to contemplate, and then time for walks and all kinds of things. Connecting as humans, connecting to the reason why, all that stuff, that creates just a softer... More spacious, more expansive. To go back to what Justin was pointing us towards with Judson Brewer, when we're thinking in that place, novel ideas can be made, new relationships can be formed that can be super powerful for addressing these issues. I've seen it happen with these, you know, unlikely characters, you know, forming, forming alliances and and doing the work and making big changes on, say, PFOS and different um, toxic chemicals. So. There's something about getting quiet and getting back to our humanity and also getting quiet and expanding and getting back to, getting to a different way of thinking where novel connections can be made. That's where I'll start us off, but I think Justin should take us here. That's
0: yeah. excellent. And you mentioned Ron this word equanimity and we spoke with with a few people about this idea of equanimity, and it gets to the essence one of the essential questions we explored in this book which is whether or not there even is such a thing as silence because we're living in a world that's always buzzing and vibrating and you know a mind that's totally silent is in a word dead you know the kind of silence we're talking about is as lee mentioned before something subjective something in the human experience You know, when we asked that same same professor, we were just talking about Judson Brewer, about the meaning of silence in the mind, he talked about the Theravada Buddhist idea of equanimity, which is the absence of the push or pull, you know, and this is a subjective state. There's probably not a state of total absence of push or pull in the world. Total absence of noise. There's a story from the uh, 20th century composer, John Cage, who in the 1940s went into an anechoic chamber, a totally soundless room. And when he got there, he told the engineer in charge that, hey, this thing isn't working as advertised because I still hear two noises this one high-pitched sound and one low-pitched sound. And the engineer said, oh, the low-pitched sound is the sound of your blood and circulation. And the high-pitched sound is the sound of your nervous system and operation. You know, which is just to, to say there's nothing in this world that's totally soundless. But we can experience the absence of the push or pull in our own experience or at least a reduction of that push or pull that brings us away from a state of appreciation that brings us away pushes and pulls us away from the present moment so when i think about this idea of equanimity as getting beyond that excessive push or pull it comes back again to the way things are structured in our world because mm-hmm. We say in the book that noise is our most celebrated addiction. You know, as you were mentioning before, Ron, like meditation is a really tough pitch to a lot of your friends because mm-hmm. so much of our society is organized around the idea that the push and the pull equals progress. We want to be churning. We want to be moving. You know, we don't want to stay present because we got to keep going. we got to generate more information. we got to fill the space. So I love this question of like what's what's possible if we tune into silence? And this is a big question we explore in the book. And it's a it's a, it's a question we explore in the book through stories primarily. Yeah. But in its essence, kind of a common thread. And we could talk about some of those stories, but a common thread is what we talk about is silence as you know, as humility, is this place of not knowing. Silence is a place of letting go, of accepting that it's okay to not fill the space. And if you look at politics these days and culture and society, it's all about filling the space. And what happens when we don't feel the urge to need to fill the space is we find through these stories that the mind tunes, the mind moves almost like a compass toward the pursuit of truth. I
1: really love that. Why don't we talk a little bit about the historical significance of silence? Because this is not something novel to the 21st century, right? Of course, it isn't. Um, and when you when you recognize how all of the ancient traditions, nearly all of them, have some form of practice designed to orient the individual around. Uh, silence, for lack of a universal word, um, it becomes very obvious how much we're missing it in, in our world today. Um, can you share a few um, sort of landmarks throughout the uh, historical record that you studied that that jumped out to you um, the I learned a lot about Pythagoras, as I mentioned, uh, from, from one of your chapters. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, but the, the stuff throughout history that made you sort of pop your eyes open and say, Oh, like this is obviously this is not a new thing, but we're, we we've lost, we've lost it somewhere. We've lost what, uh, with these, what the ancients were, what we're looking at.
2: I'll start us down that path. Um, that is, like, in a way, our appreciation for the innateness of silence, our our human wisdom about silence, came in sort of towards the end of this entire uh, exploration. I and mean, one thing we were excited about, of course, is that silence felt accessible. It didn't, it wasn't it kind of, you know, you didn't have to believe in something necessarily else. It, I don't know, it just seemed to attract all kinds of people. Everyone felt ownership of it, if they, you know, if they, they celebrated it in their own way and lots of room for interpretation. So it feel, feels accessible. It feels innate to us, to being human. It feels scalable in a way that's different, you know. Um, when, when we were looking to historical figures, one that, that came in as such a teacher about, about silence is Gandhi. And he took every Monday in silence, even with all he was doing. He would take every Monday to be silent. And, you know, his friends and his colleagues would try to talk him out of that, and he would refuse. It was a, a key, you know, a keystone to his practice. So every Monday he might attend a meeting that was critical or happening, a conference or whatever, but he wouldn't say a word. And on Tuesdays when he'd emerge from that, he would speak without notes, and they're like a rapturous flow. He often spoke about how in these meetings that were um, bloated and windy, you know, people would beg for more time from the chairman to speak longer, and they would always go over that time they were allotted, and he found a great frustration in that. <laughs> and so, we we turned to him, and he also said that a, a seeker after truth has to be silent. So, that that really was pretty opposed to, to our activist backgrounds and mine in domestic violence and, you know, breaking the silence and, you know, speaking truth to power, which is all beautiful, they have beautiful roots, and we'll speak to that. But it's almost like the only way to be an activist, I you know, was just to, to react very quickly and verbally in a way. And so we really appreciated looking back historically to the movements of justice, the Quakers, Gandhi, yeah. Thomas Merton, and really where this um, appreciation for silence, that silence could be the work of justice and not just like a cop-out or a place of complacency or complicity. That was a great uh, discovery for us.
1: I love that. I'm going to ask you about the, uh, the
0: Quakers uh, in a few minutes, but Justin, what stood out to you? You know, one thing at first that stuck out for us was that Human beings have always, virtually always complained about how noisy it is. We look at some research that in South Asia, around 500 BC, there were descriptions of the sounds of elephants and horses and chariots and drums and tabors and lutes and people screaming, eat, yay, and drink. And A hundred years ago, you still had people in New York City talking about the noise. So, this is something that through all of humanity, you know, people have said, what era is, is, you know, noisier than the previous? And we look to it, you know, there's a a, a professor of African American theology, Barbara Holmes, who says, you know, back in the day, it was just silence or donkeys. So, she doesn't give the old old (laughs) mystics that much credit. There was silence everywhere. So, now she says, you know, it's an intentional choice to need to seek the silence in our lives. So, there's always been this human relationship with silence. And we could see it in various myths and parables and biblical stories. But Pythagoras, who you mentioned, strikes us as, as a really important example for the modern era. And that's because we find that we're living in a time when it seems like the old ways of working just aren't cutting it. Like we need deeper means of discovering new technologies, real technologies to improve people's lives rather than just juicing profits, you know, real solutions that are going to bring healing to people who are suffering. And Pythagoras you know, might bring back fearsome flashbacks to middle school math class. You know, he's the namesake mm-hmm. of that geometric theorem for finding the long side of a right triangle. But he was a generative genius of the sort that we just don't see too often these year, these days. You know, he he combined a kind of spiritual and mystic awareness with real-world problem-solving that allowed him to still appear in middle school math textbooks. You know, he discovered so much in terms of geometry, in terms of medicine, in terms of geography and meteorology and so many fields. And in order to study in, in the inner circle of Pythagoras's school, you had to spend five years not talking. Mm. The understanding of historians is that he required five years virtually in silence just to study with him. So... We don't recommend anyone go spend five years in the silence. I yeah. mentioned, you know, we, I have two-year-old <laughs> twins and a six-year-old and I'm busy working in politics and, you know, lead the same. She is a teenager. And, and what we're talking about here though, is how can we bring this same logic? You know, how can we explore the question? What would five years in silence do to the mm-hmm. architecture of your mind? And when we we ask that question, it's like work backwards. What would happen? And it comes back to what, you know, I was just talking about how in this silence, in this place of not having to fill the space, as is the MO these days, there's a turning toward truth. We're not so interested in performing for other people's expectations. We're not so interested in the entertainment and the diversion. You know, back to the question you asked before, Ron, why is silence scary? It's like it's scary because we have to face ourselves. We have to face truth. There's no more diversion. There's no Netflix. There's no HBO Max. You know, it's just there in the moment with yourself, with nature, finding out what's really real.
1: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com.